0: The fact that early on we established that the podcast is gonna be an hour at least and it's gonna cover your whole life and career and that we then had buy-in for that format from people that didn't have to do it and haven't done it elsewhere like Meryl Streep or Will Smith or whatever, Steven Spielberg, pretty much anyone after that how do they say, oh, I, I don't, I'm sorry, I don't do that, it's, I'm not gonna do it, when very luckily, early on, the cream of the crop believed in it, and they realized, look, it's gonna be maybe more time than you would normally spend on an interview, but it's gonna be time well spent, and it will then be promoted and reach a lot of people and all of that, but that allows me to be able to be methodical about the interviews.
1: Welcome to Mentors on the Mic, I'm your host, Michelle Miller, a New York City native actress with credits in film, television, off-Broadway, and commercials. Every Monday, I'll bring you an incredible mentor in the entertainment industry, focusing on how they started and how they moved up to where they are today. Thanks for listening, and let the episode begin. I'm really excited to introduce you to this guest. I know I always say that, but Scott Feinberg specifically is my mentor, is someone I look up to. Now, we really have only had a couple conversations, including this interview. But I've looked up to him for a long time because he was one of the first podcasts that I ever, you know, got a hold of. He is a columnist for The Hollywood Reporter, as well as their podcast host for Awards Chatter. And Awards Chatter is an in-depth interview, one-on-one interview with some of your favorite filmmakers and celebrities. He's interviewed over 350 guests. They include Oprah, Steven Spielberg, Julia Roberts, Lauren Michaels, Jennifer Lawrence, which we talk a lot about in this episode, Meryl Streep. So he's really run just the gamut of the most amazing people. And he asks them just literally how they started or not even how they started. He goes even further back. He'll go like, he'll always start with what did your parents do and where were you born and raised? So he starts from the beginning. And he has the best questions. So I personally look to him as a mentor for this podcast because I've loved that podcast for so long. His journey is so interesting, how he got from one job to the next. It really sort of paints a picture to creating your own work. And creating what you love and like letting those opportunities come to you in some ways. He is the oracle for Oscars. So if you just even Google just predictions for Oscars, you'll find his columns from The Hollywood Reporter. And we talk about everything from how he researches and sort of creates those predictions and what he's learned from watching just an insane amount of movies and the pattern that follows from that. He talks about tricks and tactics that film studios go through to garner favor for awards voters, specifically during Oscar season and what that means. He's watched all those shows on television for so long, and now he gets to be in the audience for the Oscars, for the Emmys, for the Tonys, all of it. So it's a lot of about creating that job for yourself, even if that's not there. In the beginning, he was at the forefront of blogs. He was at the forefront of podcasts. And I just learned so much from him. I know you're going to love this. So without further ado, welcome, Scott Feinberg. All right. Welcome, Scott. How are you? Thank you so much for being on the podcast.
0: My pleasure. Thank you for asking.
1: Okay, so this is why I'm particularly excited and kind of a little jazzed to have you. Um And I think I've never really been nervous for any of my interviews, but I think I'm a little nervous to talk with you. And I'll explain, you know, more in the intro. So people might have already heard this by now. But You're like my podcasting mentor like I've I've followed your podcast since you know the beginning I think you were probably the first podcast I ever subscribed to ever downloaded And I listened to all your episodes and I was like this guy's so good at interviewing And so I've only made I only created my podcast three months ago four months ago four months ago And I think in my head I'm doing like a baby version of what you do so well. Like, I just feel like I look to you as a mentor, even without really talking to you about what a podcast should be, an interview-based podcast should be. So for I, if, if that's not enough of a everyone should go subscribe and download Awards Chatter right now, I don't know what is.
0: Well, thank <laughs> you for all the kind words and for listening to it all and everything. And, um, yeah, I mean... <sighs> As you as you now know from having your own podcast, it's it's a lot of work, but it's also very rewarding when you know that people are enjoying it. So that's very nice to hear. Thank you.
1: I'm sure I'm going to probably say many more compliments throughout the interview. So that'll just I just wanted to be that's how I started. I can just geek out for a second. Very
0: nice. I appreciate Uh, it.
1: Personally, I always start my episodes with how did you start in the industry? What was your first job in entertainment?
0: well i'm just thinking if i should take that literally or expand on it a little bit because the reality is first time i was paid to work in the industry i guess even that's tricky because so i guess do you have a time crunch on your podcast or can we, I don't. Can we
1: no i don't not at all
0: uh, okay so i'll give you the story which is that when i was in junior high school there was a list that came out of the 100 greatest movies of all time uh, from the American Film Institute. And for me, it wasn't that I was particularly interested in movies at all and had no interest, by the way, in old movies, but I always sort of you know, was a trivia buff. And in fact, the way I became aware of that list was that there had been a question on who wants to be a millionaire, which was hot at the time, Uh, basically saying which of these four movies was recently named the greatest of all time by the American Film Institute. And I had not seen any of them and I'd heard of them and, you know, whatever, but I just didn't really have any interest. And yet, as I was, it was the long weekend before I was going to be starting my, uh, I guess it was going to be eighth grade I think ninth grade I was like you know what I'm gonna rent them all from the library I biked over there and got them out on VHS and I'm gonna just suffer through this so that at least I can say I have seen these movies when they come up in trivia questions or whatever that was the whole back wow. background but as anybody who I think watches Citizen Kane Casablanca Godfather and Gone with the Wind you know with an open mind will tell you like you're you're going to get hooked and I didn't realize that was the case but I was and then it became oh well maybe I should give more of these a chance so I printed out the list of the 100 and then within a year I was done with those wow. and then I needed more lists so I I got the 400 that they picked that 100 from there had been a ballot wow. and then I started to realize that and this just shows you how inadvertent and crazy you know life can be sometimes I was like the Oscars I guess they go back pretty far. And that's probably a lot of other movies that I should be seeing the best picture nominees. And, and so I started to go through those and realize just totally inadvertently that certain kinds of movies have always done well against other kinds of movies, mm. certain kinds of performances. It was just from seeing a lot of movies in a short amount of time. And the other crazy thing that happened was that the, the, local library where i was renting these movies from most of them there was a local newspaper that i guess was was told by the librarian hey you know we have this kid that you know is doing a little bit of a weird thing you might want to it's kind of a cold story so they did an article on me renting all these movies and the next thing that happened was because I'm, i'm from a small town in connecticut that is a suburb of new haven the local abc news affiliate gets a lot of their news from the local newspapers and they saw this and, and I think it was just about Oscar time. And they were like, well, maybe, you know, we'll do like a cute kid segment, like a today wow. show kind of stuff. So they said, why don't we ask him to come on and talk, you know, give his picks for the Oscars. So again, I was 15 the first time. And again, I don't think they figured I really knew anything that I was talking about. It was just, let's have him on. Yeah. And I didn't know nearly you know, as much as I know now, so I did okay. But I think that they were like, "Well, this is actually a serious thing for this guy. Let's keep having him back." Wow! And so every Oscars until I went off to college at Brandeis University, I was brought back, invited back to do this with WTNH, the ABC affiliate for New Haven. And so by the time I promise I'm getting to the the real oh, answer to your question, but <laughs> so by the time I was leaving for college, I was known in my community as the guy that, you know, could tell you who's going to win and also what you should see and whatever. And so now people were saying, well, what are we going to do? How are we going to know what's, you know, not a lot of people, but my friends and family and people were saying, well, how are we going to know what we should see and what's going to win and blah, blah, blah. So I said, I have heard of uh, the, this new thing called a blog. Yeah. I have, uh, which were pretty new. And I was like, I'll figure out how to make one and then I'll send the link to my friends and family and I'll maybe like keep this up on the weekend. I'll try to keep seeing movies and update and, you know, whatever. Just if you're enjoying it, I enjoy doing it.
1: And that was called And the Winner Is, right?
0: Exactly. Exactly. And so, and literally what happened there was that I went to (laughs) blog.com, which I figured that's where you go if you start a blog. So I went to blog.com. I... And by the way, I think at that point I should mention, I had like sent in a few like unsolicited guest pieces to uh, what was then called Oscar Watch and is now called Awards Daily, which is still around. Wow. So that was – yeah, it was very nice of like this lady, Sasha Stone, who I now know, to just take unsolicited pieces and run it. So that was what – I think that's how I knew that blogs existed. Mm. And then I figured, all right, I'll go – start my own, which at blog.com, you basically just <laughs> selected a template and you put in dot something.blog.com. So I was like, well, and the winner is .blog.com. And I, while I was at Brandeis, just, you know, would periodically update it. And then within my freshman year, I started getting emails from publicists out in LA saying, hey, you know, where are you based? We enjoy the blog. We want to invite you to our advanced press screenings and all which stuff that I couldn't believe. And I was a little nervous that if they found out that, you know, this is a kid in a dorm room, they would stop communicating. But basically what happened, I I learned is that in each major city, there is a kind of a list of press that they show the movies to in advance so that when the movies open, they the reviews are ready to run on that date, which sends people to the theaters and all that and so lo and behold these guys added me to the you know the studios wow. out in la which i guess through google or whatever had discovered my blog and predictions and whatever they wanted to be visible on the blog and so i was invited to the press screenings then the next thing that happened was they sent you know talent sometimes to promote stuff through major cities so when they would come through boston you know do you want to interview this person or this person you know and it, at that point it wasn't like necessarily the cream of the crop I remember Paris Hilton was like one of the people wow. that can't grow. but it was doing interviews which was good and it was also something that I had dabbled in a little bit even before college because the selfish kind of thing there was like I can't believe I was I was reading in the newspapers that somebody you know jimmy stewart i don't know if that's an an actual example but somebody that whose movies old movies i was enjoying i didn't even realize they were still alive and then i'd read that they died and i felt bad that i had not you know damn i was alive at a time when this person was alive and i could have i wouldn't wouldn't have been great to you know have met and interviewed them or done something and so then it, it had become a question of like how could a teenager in high school in Connecticut possibly actually do that. But I figured there's got to be a way if you get creative. And my idea was that maybe I can write a book that will get other young people excited about old movies, because I know that very few of my friends gave a damn about any of this stuff that I was doing on the side. So I thought, like, that's actually a plausible idea. And I meant it. I didn't have a publisher or anything. I just was like, that might be the way to get interesting, exciting people to Speak with me. And so sure enough, again, it's that had started with cold calling people, looking them up online on the white pages, starting really low. So, you know, not low in terms of not, you know, not the most famous people, but people that were interesting. So the last living munchkins from The Wizard of Oz or the last surviving cast member from Citizen Kane, people like that and slowly they, people like that, obviously worked with the people who were more famous wow. and more established, and they would sort of pass me up the food chain. So by the time I'm at Brandeis getting these interview opportunities with current people, I'd actually-
1: Had been doing it for a while.
0: Yeah, done a bit of interviewing, which even then, I would think the format was not that different from what the podcast is now, because wow. it was always sort of modeled after Inside the actor Studio, which right. I really loved. And- Uh, was the only place where I had seen not necessarily golden age Hollywood actors, but older, you know, people from movies that were before my time being interviewed. Seriously, exactly, exactly.
1: Where did those interviews go, the ones from high school?
0: That's a great question. Mm -hmm. And the answer is I have a folder, a binder that I'm looking at right now where (laughs) I, you know, a part of me really does. I'm going to I'm going to fulfill that.
1: Time pledge at dream. some point yeah you know it's
0: a dream but also I feel like I said to these people that this is what I was trying to do and I will I meant it I then got you know a little diverted with a jo- day-to-day job <laughs> in life yeah. but I I mean there I think these are some pretty good interviews with some pretty amazing people so you know just to give you an example who was it that died this week
1: Sean Connery died uh, today
0: I, I know I saw yeah. that. I never got to interview him. I would have loved to. Yeah. Uh, but somebody was, oh, so it wasn't that somebody died this week, but Jane Russell, who was okay. in, you know, Gentlemen Prefer Blondes with Marilyn yeah. Monroe and a lot of 40s movies and just amazing story is someone who I had interviewed in 2005, I believe it was maybe 2007. So this was because when I was at Brandeis, what I would do is I would in the summers come out to LA for a week. Wow. with like the the earnings of my summer yeah. tennis teaching job or yeah. whatever. And it was so that I, I would line up a bunch of these interviews to do in person. I had been doing them on the phone, but wow. I was like, again, wouldn't it be cool to do this in person? So anyway, she was one of those. And I was thinking about her this week because somebody had written, has got a new biography of her. And I it ended up being some really interesting, good people, Mickey Rooney, Ernest Borgnine, people that were big deals during the golden age. So getting back to the Brandeis time period. It was continuing. The blog was finding its following and was, you know, all of that while I was at Brandeis. So that basically I graduated, as you said, in 08. And now I was like, damn, I guess I, (laughs) I got to figure out what I want to do now because, you know, and I I honestly, at that point, I remember thinking and talking to my parents and people, I was like, I'd like to be sort of like Tom Doherty. I want to be a film professor. And I still think that's a great aim to have. But what what ended up happening was that, again, this is 08 when the economy went off right. the
1: cliff. right? And
0: I was like, oh Jesus. And <laughs> all of my, you know, I was a good student at Brandeis, but I, I wasn't the, I had people that were far better that I knew who I knew and nobody was getting anywhere with mm. work opportunities. It was just, there were no jobs. It was a scary time. And Out of the blue, just as um, I think I'd even started to research and asked, I did ask Doherty about, you know, PhD programs or whatever, so that if I needed to become a professor, I was disheartened by the idea that it's going to be maybe seven years of grad school or something like that. And then at the end, you just take a job where you can get it. I might end up in the middle of nowhere. And I was like, this is not ideal. But I was like, can't I just come work for you at Brandeis. I want to. So in the midst of all this, I then get contacted by this guy, Richard Rushfield, who was at the Los Angeles Times Mm. and was the entertainment section editor. And he said, look, are you available to meet? I'd like to speak to you about a possible job offer. And I couldn't believe it because first of all, there weren't many job offers anywhere, but also- I had lived in fear the whole time I was at Brandeis when I'm going to these, going into Boston on the T or whatever to go to press screenings or doing interviews or whatever. That the minute somebody saw me, they were going to say, What the hell are you doing? Mm-hmm. You know, get out of here. Who are you? You like know,
1: imposter syndrome almost. Like,
0: well, and I, and I was in a sense yeah. an imposter. I mean, I, I didn't lie to anybody, but I also didn't volunteer that I'm 18, 19, or what would I have been? Yeah, 18, 19, 20, 21 years old yeah. at that point. So now I, mean, I guess I'm, I was 22. And I get this call from Richard Rushfield. He's like, can you meet? I think I did say to him, I, I'm based in Connecticut, but I am out in LA a lot and I'd be happy to come out and talk to you. And he said something like, yeah, I would love to meet with you. Um, and at some point indicated that it wasn't necessary that I actually be in LA for the job.
1: Oh, which okay. Which was great because yeah. at that
0: point I didn't know anybody in LA and I I was not that anxious to move out and whatever so i i think i was in la shortly thereafter for one of these like interviewing weeks or whatever where i was still speaking to older actors and i and i never have stopped but that was what i was coming out to la for and i met with him at a mexican restaurant like across from the paramount lot and he i had brought literally my giant binder of interviews with old actors and just was kind of hoping he wouldn't ask me my age. I thought that the binder might be like, well, well, he's been doing this somewhere. Like what's, and I don't think he ever did ask me my age. And he was like, he just knew the blog and he was like, yeah, we want you to do that for us. Nice. And so I was,
1: did they have a blog already or was, do you create something for them?
0: It yeah. was both because they had started a section of the LA times website called the envelope. Right. And,
1: and you had created something for the envelope, right? The Feinberg files? Yeah.
0: You should, exa- thank you. Yeah, exactly. He's like, the Feinberg files will be a blog of the, of within the envelope, which was also at that point, you know, had blogs by Pete Hammond and Tom O'Neill who are to this day yeah. two of my kind of friendly competitors. And so <laughs> it was a funny thing because there weren't, now there's blogs like this right. everywhere. everywhere. But at, at that point, you know, there were not. And I was like, I didn't know any any of these guys. I was like, he was great at that point, Richard. He was like, just do for us what you've been doing for yourself. Right. I don't care where you do it from. And basically the truth is, I think the LA Times was not in a great place. They were stretched thin. There, they were layoffs all the time. And the person who I answered to on a day-to-day basis was not Richard. And it was somebody who they looked at it as, look, we're hiring you for the season. I'm not going to mm. look over your shoulder. Just – you know, be creative. And so one of the things that I did for them and for me, because it was that, wait a minute. Okay. So I have the LA times just wants cool content from me. I want to, I still, I'm only a year out of Brandeis. I have a lot of friends that are still there. I like being there. And I then had gotten to know the person who had sort of succeeded Doherty running the film stuff at Brandeis. And I knew that they had a budget to do exciting film things but they couldn't get people to come to Brandeis.
1: Right. So I
0: was like, wait a minute, this can work for all of us. If I, The way it, it kind of all came together was that Brandeis said, look, if you can get exciting people to come to Brandeis to be interviewed there, we will cover the costs of that and we will film it and then we will provide that video exclusively to the LA Times. So the LA Times is getting mm. content with exciting people that they wouldn't otherwise. It also looks like I'm doing something for – you know, I'm not in LA. So I want them to see that I'm, I am doing things. I don't want them to forget I exist. And so that was how that started. And so in 2008 was when we, when we really started, we had Melissa Leo who ended up getting nominated for an Oscar, Richard Jenkins, who ended up getting nominated for an Oscar, Mark Ruffalo, Alan Alda, Kate Beckinsale.
1: I went to the Kate Beckinsale one, too.
0: You were at that one, too. Yeah, that was awesome. I mean... Uh,
1: Deborah Granick, as we said.
0: Deborah Granick, I think, was a, a short time later. And in between was the one that really probably caused the most excitement on campus of all of them, which was that we got Sasha Gray, the...
1: Yes, I mattress. remember that. <laughs> that was a commotion on campus.
0: Yeah, somebody there in the who was handling tickets or something said that they had not had so much demand from students for anything since Jimmy Carter came to oh, campus. Oh my god! So because basically, Sasha Grey, this this porn star, had been had joined Steven, Steven Soderbergh
1: film. Yeah, the that. Girlfriend
0: Experience coming back. So to yeah, and I mean that was a. I asked for it, but it was an interesting, awkward experience because here I am interviewing a porn star about not just the movie, but about her whole life and body of work, career, yeah, in front of my parents, my professors, you (laughs) know, and a lot of students. And and what I just (laughs) will never forget is that each time I, you know, there were numerous times where she or I inadvertently like said something that could be seen as a double entendre. Mm. And so students would, you know, kind of bust out laughing. So like, I remember I was like, all right, I see we're running out of time. So let's just bang out a few questions. And everybody was just like, (laughs) but these were, these were, you know, it was a great thing to be able to do coming back to Brandeis. And so the problem though, was that at the end of about a year and a half of being with the LA times, I think they realized like we have two guys doing very similar coverage in LA. Mm. Why are we,
1: how why do we need a people. third
0: guy? And why do we have yeah. you know this guy? So we parted ways. And now I was in a real situation because I thought I had like hit the jackpot when I got the LA Times opportunity. But now when that went away and I had neglected my own blog in order to go right. focus on theirs, I didn't really have anything to go back to. And I was right. like, did I make a mistake? Do I now need to relook at, you know, did I essentially just put off going to graduate school, which I
1: I was going to ask you.
0: Yeah. Like, did I just, did I really hold myself back by deceiving myself into thinking that I could do this? Anyway, I was like, you know what? Being with the LA Times had led to a lot of cool things. Like, for example, that was the first time that I ever got to actually attend the Oscars. In that case, it was backstage or, you know, in the press room. It wasn't in the audience, which right. it subsequently has become, but I mean, I was, that was the most exciting day of my life. I mean, for somebody that was obsessed with the Oscars to suddenly be able to go to that, or the Golden Globes, or, you know, and that was, I i knew it was because my profile had been elevated by being with the LA Times. Right. But now that I was no longer with the LA Times, would anyone still, you know, want anything to do with me? Did they, you know, could I independently still matter? And I was like, you know what, I'm going to take a year to find out if I, to get the answer to that question. It's worth finding out rather than giving up on this just because I can't do it for the LA times anymore.
1: Is that when you created your website, scottfeinberg.com?
0: Exactly, exactly. You've done your homework. Listen, I've, I've, I've... You, I mean, I'll
1: talk about it later, but you're one of the most, you research everybody. I was like, I, I normally do, but I was like, I have to be thorough today.
0: Well, thank you. I, I definitely appreciate because I know it's, you know, the difference is, you know it's more work for you but you end up with a with a better conversation that's yeah, my experience so but I appreciate you doing that but I
1: learned that from you so go on <laughs> yes <laughs> but that is from you because I'm always like wow he's just like so well researched all right anyway so scottfeinberg dot com
0: yeah well which is at this point deceased but yeah I looked I'll, it up I'm I just more... wanted to
1: double check if there was anything yeah. in existence and it's not
0: yeah well it's dormant it's not it's deceased dormant. I just haven't really had a yeah.
1: You have you have the domain name, I imagine.
0: I do have the domain name. Not that I don't. I don't think there's too many Scott Feinbergs lining up for it. But maybe never know. What happened was I was like, look, I will take a year. I'm going to invest. I'm kind of bet on myself a little bit for a year, and if I can't make this do workable, then I will go back to college or, or excuse me, uh, graduate school or whatever. And I would have gone down that route, but I right. I was like, you know what, let's. I paid a guy to design a website the way I wanted it where you had some space if if I could ever sell ads and, Mm. and whatever there. And I basically, there were a couple of people who I had gotten to know when I was with the LA times who worked at studios who were just very nice and helpful and said, look, we think this is good. You should, you, you, we now all know who you are within this Oscar world because of the Mm. LA times exposure. But that doesn't stop because you're no longer with them. So now right. if you tell us you have a um, website of your own, you should, We, you know, we would encourage our marketing people or whatever to buy ads. And mm-hmm. I, the other thing they did, which was helpful, because I did, had no idea, I didn't know what the LA Times charged for ads. Right. Um, and I knew that I wasn't going to charge the same because I'm not, yeah. the, I was one guy. Yeah. But what I learned was that they kind these people at the different studios who I, who are, was and remained friends with essentially said, look, you could probably ask us for this kind of money at ballpark. And just so that I wasn't, you know, make talking either really lowballing myself or really pricing myself out of what was reasonable. And so over the next I guess approximately, yeah, it was like two years, yeah. I was selling ads directly to the studios while, and I sort of, you had a third party guy that I, a friend who would handle that so that there's not a direct like conflict of interest. But I learned that I could, I could actually make a better living than I did when I was with the LA times because the LA times was probably paying me a small fraction of what they were getting for the ads on my content. Now I was getting to keep all of it. And I, was my boss and I, I really liked it, which is why when in 2011, I get this call from, I think the Hollywood Reporter, I wasn't sure I wanted to go because Mm, I I kind of like being my own boss. Yeah. Great. Uh, So it was exactly, exactly. And so um, that was, that was a, that was a really like a fork in the road because um, I was totally ready to pass it up, even though the person who was calling me was this woman who I did not know well at the time, but her name was Lynn Siegel. She was the publisher at the LA Times when I was there. Now she had mm-hmm. gone over to the Hollywood Reporter, which was in a very different situation. The LA Times, like I said, had when I would go into the newsroom when I was out in LA, it felt like a sinking ship. You know, like each time there were fewer people there. Like they were just mm-hmm. laying off people all the time. It would, yeah. no, the morale was not good. Now the Hollywood Reporter though had had very recently hired this uh, woman Janice Min who had been the editor of Us Weekly and made that into a big hit and now she was coming over to turn over you know basically uh, rebrand Re-band, the Hollywood yeah. Reporter yeah and instead of you know Hollywood Reporter and Variety were these two trade papers that had been around for most of Hollywood history as competitors daily pu- you know daily publications that people read to find out who was doing what who was signing with who every little Insider part of the business. But then when the internet came along, it didn't make sense to, you know, that stuff you could get in a lot of different places. And so Janice's great idea was all right, we're going to turn it into a weekly glossy magazine that's less about, you know, Smart. kind of insider stuff. It's going to be more about, you know, there's some of that, but it's going to be features and whatever. And then have a great website that is doing all the, the content analysis stuff, yeah. and day to day. And so that's where. Lynn said to Janice, "Like, you know, we need to have an awards guy, and you should get Scott." And so, wow. um, that's how that came about. And if you really want a maybe the craziest story of all,
1: yes, <laughs> um,
0: I I will say that you know, so back in Woodbridge, Connecticut, this little town where I grew up, I had taken a junior high school Latin class for whatever reason. I don't know. I guess I thought it would help with SATs or whatever with this older teacher who was like very near retirement. And we, the students gave her a hard time, but she was fun. And so we all had a, we had kind of a fun relationship. Her name was Mrs. Hotis. And Mrs. Hodis was aware of the fact that I was very into movies. And in fact, one of the things that I did when I was in high school to kind of make a few bucks and really just as a fun thing to do with movies was that the local library where I'd been renting all of them said, look, we have this theater and I had asked, could I use it in some evenings, like can I sell in you know, ten bucks or something? People can come watch Casablanca and then I'll do a talk, a QA or a talk or whatever, you wow. know, about a different old movie. So Mrs. Hodis was nice enough to bring her son who was home from college or something, he was a few years older than me she brought him to one of these things and my parents and I, but my parents thought that was so nice that they said, you know, a high
1: school teacher would do that.
0: Yeah. Like, so they said, you know, afterwards come over for coffee and whatever. So we, that's the only time I'd ever met Mrs. Hodas's son who was again, you know, maybe I want to say five or six years older than me. And then I, you know, all the rest of the stuff that we've been talking about happened so now I'm, flash forward to getting this, getting approached by
1: Hollywood the Report.
0: Hollywood Reporter. And in that period where I was not sure if I was going to say yes or no, there had been an, a, a kind of random thing where Samsung wanted to do an advertisement in the Condé Nast publication. So like Vanity Fair, GQ, I think, a bunch of different, where they were going to show that bloggers, independent bloggers, use Samsung Technology, which I think I can now say I didn't use Samsung technology, but uh, that was cool. I was going to be in an ad.
1: Yeah, of course. Yeah.
0: So I still don't really know how they knew to come to me as one of the people that was part of this thing, but they did. And so I was one of a bunch of independent bloggers that was in this thing, which then was in all these magazines. So as I'm now waiting to hear from, or wait, you know, kind of, Thinking about what I'm going to do with the Hollywood Reporter offer, I get a phone call, and person says, "Hi, uh, I don't know if you remember me, but my name's Jason Hodis, uh, Mrs. Really? Hodis's son." Yeah, he's like, yeah. Of course, I yeah. of course I remember you. Yeah, how's everything going? What are you? Uh, he's like, he's like, it's great. How are you? I, I, he's like, I he said, I just saw you in one of these
1: Samsung
0: Samsung things, yeah. and I was so happy to see that you're you know still doing this this work and you're enjoying it and whatever. I was like, Yeah, man, it's been it's been unexpected, but it's been great and I am now just been approached about doing it for the Hollywood Reporter. So I'm trying to decide whether I want to do that or not. But anyway, enough about me. Like, what are you up to? And he said, Well, since we've spoken, I became an agent and now I'm a partner at WME, William Morris Endeavor. Endeavor. And he's like, And by the way, I'm now your agent Because he's going to he's like, you're going to sign with the Hollywood Reporter. There's no downside to doing that. If it doesn't work out, your standing is benefited from having been involved with them. And let me I'm now representing you in that and I will take it from here. And so
1: did he know that was coming or did he just hear the conversation and immediately went like immediately? There was no
0: no, there was no agenda. I think he was literally kind of like. Oh, that's so awesome that you're in the magazine. Like what's, tell me what you you know, tell me more about your site. And I also think that there may have been some sense at WME. And I've got to talk to him about this because we still are friendly and he still kind of, uh, you know, works on stuff with together there. He had, I think they probably are encouraged to like take on sort of pet, yeah. a couple of pet projects because it's like, if they, if you believe in this person and it, pans into something you know that was a that's a a good idea and so but I don't know I think it was mostly just that he's a nice guy and he and the timing was exquisite and so that was the beginning of The Hollywood Reporter that's
1: that's amazing. I, I interviewed a guy um, an agent at Buckwald specifically for TV and film and he said that yeah, not as much anymore for him, but when he was starting out he was very much encouraged to look at TV and film and kind of see favorites and see who they're represented by and kind of push to like see if he could, you know, get those meetings and such. Yeah, so and I think it's yeah, the they, back they, of his they,
0: head. it's possible and and you know, I always feel that if I if, you know, I ever did anything that really brought in some, some bacon. If I ever got to be James Lipton or anything like that,
1: you would need an agent.
0: I would need an agent, but also hopefully I would be able to repay his confidence in me for, you know, he took a gamble on me. I would certainly not go anywhere else in a situation like that. And so anyway, that was essentially almost 10 years ago and it's been Hollywood Reporter ever
1: since. since. So I mean, and then well, I guess we'll just pivot this into podcasts, because you started that. Now, you're, it's interesting, you're saying all this, because, you know, when you're talking about your sort of experience with creating a blog, that was really at the forefront of blogs, like you said, I mean, you went to blog.com, it was it was something that was new. And then you were also really at the forefront of podcasts, because I really feel like although people were making podcasts, it was not a popular thing in 2015. So when did that, you know, did you come up with the idea? Did they pitch you this at The Hollywood Reporter? How did that come about?
0: Well, I, it's funny to kind of step back and think about. It. Yeah, because I, I guess it was very early for, for podcasts. But I, I need to share credit here because what had happened was that, you know, I was aware of, I may, you know, be slightly off with the chronology of some of these things. But there were a few things that happened where it was like Obama, when he was trying to get Obamacare passed and get rally public support for it recognized that there was a large audience for Mark Marin's podcast out of his garage. Right. And literally went with the Secret Service to Mark Marin's garage. Yeah. And recorded the podcast there because he knew maybe this is the kind of audience I don't generally reach. Right. And yet their support counts too. Right. And so I think that was maybe one of the first times I just heard about podcasts. That was probably about I don't know when Obamacare was, maybe two thousand 10 or 12. Yeah. Um, so something like that. But then the other key thing that was happening was that the secretary of Janice Minn, the editor at The Hollywood Reporter, was this young lady named Jessie Katz. And Jessie was very overqualified for her job. She was great at her job, but she had higher ambitions that she's since begun to realize. But what she was, what she would do there to try to, break out of just being, you know, the person who works with Janice was she somehow found or bought equipment, like a couple of decent microphones and maybe a decent recorder. And what she would do after hours was gather several female colleagues from the office to record a podcast called Girls on Men, where they would then discuss Mad men episodes which oh, were still new at the time yeah so she would cool i i man. became aware yeah girls on men and so i became aware that she was doing that and and she and i were friends and our friends and one of the things i think at some point she I, I guess even before that maybe she had done girls on girls because girls the lena the dunham show. show yeah yeah and so I think that may have preceded the Mad Men one. I don't remember. But basically with the Mad Men one, I was invited to be an honorary girl for the day yeah. and be a guest panelist. And I saw how Jesse did what she did. And I was like, this is great. This seems like a cool wave of the future. And then uh, what happened was that there were a couple of times where I would – have a golden age Hollywood person that, you know, it comes back to my obsession with them where they would, I would get an opportunity to interview them now, even though my primary job with the Hollywood reporter was writing about current award stuff. Again, they were like, just do interesting things, basically. And so one of the things that I enjoyed doing each year was working with the TCM Classic Film Festival in Hollywood. And they would you know, tell me who were going to be the honorees and would I want to interview them to help mm. promote the festival. And so with Jesse, I was able to record podcasts with a number of people who were like Shirley MacLaine, I remember, was one of the people we did that with at, at TCM Film Festival. And, and I would say, Jesse, can we, can you bring your equipment? I don't know how to record this stuff, but you know, she does. And she would help me to put it on, you know, iTunes or whatever. And it was, so she was a instrumental person in, it wasn't a podcast in the sense of like every week we're going to have something, but it was like, wait, we have Shirley McLean for an hour. Let's do something with this more than just write it up. And so she helped me a lot with that. And then we tried a thing that was going to be a regular thing with a woman named Marcia Nasseter, who I became very and and still am friendly with who is an amazing lady who's now in her 90s, but she was the first woman vice president of a studio in Hollywood back in wow. the 70s at United Artists. And this is, you know, basically I had seen on YouTube there was this there was this series called Real Geezers. R E E L Geezers. And it was Marsha basically disagreeing about movies that she and a fellow Academy member, Lorenzo Semple Jr., a screenwriter who had written Batman and all kinds of stuff, they would go to, they were just friends and they would go to Academy screenings and then come home and have coffee or something. And then one of their children or grandchildren would film them bickering about movies, like The Muppets Up in the Balcony. I loved that. I loved I I before I ever knew Marsha, I, I knew about real geezers. And so one day I was covering something at the academy and I saw Marsha come out and I ran up to her and I was basically like, Oh, I'm such a fan. Do you think we could ever do a, an interview for the Hollywood Reporter? And Marsha enjoys attention as much as any of us. And uh God bless her for it. <laughs> and so we did that interview, and then it was like we really became friendly and Lorenzo died. Mm-hmm. So Marsha's YouTube series was not continuing. And I said to Marsha, you know, should we try to do maybe once a month, like a podcast about, you know, it's me talking, she and I always had these conversations about the Oscar movies. Why don't we do this as a podcast? Yeah. And she, she su- like yeah. And, and she actually suggested that, and we call this the geezer and the kid. Because she thought <laughs> the ki- the kid was dismissive of me and geezer was dismissive of her, so yeah, th- that I was fair. That. So we did a few of those and Jesse helped with those. And then it just, you know, Jesse moved on to higher places and Marsha and I didn't keep it up and whatever. But I think that the guy who was the deputy editor and later became the editor in chief at the Hollywood Reporter, this guy Matt Bellany somehow was vaguely aware that we now knew how to do podcasts right? And, and came to me at the outset of the just before the 2015, 2016 Oscar season got underway and was like, yeah, let's do a podcast now. Uh, but it's you interviewing contenders every week. And I was like, well, this is out of the blue. We couldn't get anyone to give a damn about podcasts up till now, but I'm glad yeah. you do. And sure. Happy to do it. And I think that it was his idea to call it awards chatter. Mm. And he's like yeah, you know, just just go off and do it. And so he wasn't like micromanaging it, but he right. gave it the the, the blessing, up. which was yeah. the big thing. And so we hired a freelance guy. I was, you know, the Oscar season always starts in Telluride in a sense. And I was going to Telluride and I just remember publicists didn't really know what to make of podcasts at that point. They're like, wait a minute, do we need to be camera ready? Do do we need the talent to be, it was all new, but we were able to find a freelance sound guy to come and set up mics and whatever in Telluride because we weren't going to fly somebody specifically to record it there. But for the first episode, the idea at that point was like, maybe we do it where you get the director and the stars of movies that are in the Oscar race. More and like a
1: discussion-based.
0: Exactly, uh, and, yeah. and focusing on that movie rather than the body of work or whatever. You know, so the first episode was st- centered around Steve, Steve Jobs, Jobs, the movie. Kate Winslet. And it, exactly. I have um, it here somewhere. Seth Rogen, Danny yes. Boyle. Yes, and at one point we were supposed to have Sorkin, but he couldn't be there or something. So
1: you got him another um, time, I think. We
0: got him down the road. Yeah,
1: it would have been, and it's better that you got him that way because then you could have that long, in-depth. Yeah,
0: exactly. And the truth is, even though we sort of subsequently made a rule that you only really do it once in your career, because there would we we made certain exceptions, and one of them was certainly Kate Winslet. So we had her for a whole episode about her career, and but anyway, the point was that that was the first episode. It was good; people liked it. But it became. We realized it's it's not unless you're at a film festival. It's very hard to get three or four people together at the same time every week. And also, people haven't seen the movie yet. So what are you talking? You know, they're not even particularly interested. You know, Steve Jobs probably didn't open in theaters for another couple months. Yeah. So that format we quickly abandoned, and it became more about let's just basically do inside the actor studio up to and including whatever these people are currently promoting with an individual. And there were a couple of, there have been a couple of exceptions where it was, you know, people whose careers were so intertwined that it it would have not made sense to separate, you know, it it wouldn't have made sense to do it any other way. So like Michael Barker and Tom Bernard are the two guys that have run Sony Classics, Sony Pictures Classics. forever and so there was never going to be yeah exactly but for the very most part yeah it's almost all been individuals since then
1: right and Obviously I was going to ask you about how that evolved over time, but I think also in the beginning, like I remember in the beginning of the of the podcast, you had more you almost had like inserts for like, uh, like, inter- like 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 chatter with film critics. Like that would be the way these episodes would often start and then you're like maybe around the minute 6 or 7 or 8, then you'd start the interview with whomever. When did that change?
0: In the earliest episodes, it wasn't there. Then it came in because Matt Bellany, again, made a suggestion that I think was very good, which is that, look, you want people to listen to, to at least start play on every episode, even if they don't know or care who the primary guest right. is. And so if you have an opening segment that is not that is more tied to current events, then people who are just interested in the industry, will probably check that out and then maybe they'll stick around or not for the main guest but at least they've you know started the episode and that's how you build up a following
1: when did you start asking that like initial question of where are you from where were you born and raised where you know what did your parents do for a living when did that start
0: well that again i think comes back to by the way the james lipton stuff because i believe he would start that way something, something similar, similar to that yeah yeah um and but maybe you start not it rigidly. right away it no well I, I guess it certainly wasn't with the, like steve jobs one because it wasn't focused on the whole life and career but i think episode
1: I, two is Eddie Redmayne, and, and like, it wasn't with and that and it wasn't with that so i think it was something interesting because, like now i just remember it as like obviously something you do but yeah I think it, it took a while to get to that place and then it became like I, a thing you do like
0: you yeah know, start an i think it. that I think with the Eddie Redmayne one and for a few others early on, like Jason Siegel, I remember, and some others, I I think we were still, even though it was not a whole cast or group of people with director and and actors or whatever, it was still the idea that we're going to focus on the movie,
1: Mm. not –
0: not on your whole life story. We might find a way to integrate that. But
1: which is probably what their publicity team wanted anyway.
0: They were probably initially like, that's better for us. Yeah. I would guess that by the time of like maybe somewhere twelve to fifteen episodes in with like Ridley Scott or something yeah. and people like that, it it was starting to be more about people wanna know the whole like almost a more exciting A and E biography or something about you know, how can the challenge became in an hour, can you cover all the major moments of a person's life and career? Who yeah. have, have done so much,
1: which is difficult. I mean, I imagine is very challenging. So, I, I mean, I personally think of your interviews, and people should definitely check them out if they're not sold yet. I don't know why, but <laughs> if you think about your interviews, I think of them as very well researched, in depth interviews with people that you normally wouldn't spend, you wouldn't be able to see that much time with. You know, you see these celebrities on talk shows and and wherever, and especially right up you know, especially during awards season, they're definitely promoting the film, promoting themselves. But with you, there's just this long, just hour and something interview with that person. So in the beginning, I imagine, maybe I'm wrong, you researched everybody. Do you still research everyone? Do you have a team of people that does the research? And then you just kind of look over and choose what you want to ask?
0: So thank you for, again, noting the research because <laughs> it is a lot of work. But thank I will you tell you, there's a, there's no team. It is a, I'll be honest, like up until even to this day, I'm not sure that very many people in our leadership, you know, for many years even realized that we had this podcast there, or they knew that we had it, but they weren't listening. They were just like, oh, it's good. We should have a podcast. But they weren't, you know, people are busy. It's a time commitment. So, we weren't given and to this day are not, you know, we now have new ownership. So, I'm not going to say are not. We'll see what happens. But we you know, there was not a lot of support for okay. the podcast, which was very disheartening knowing how much work went into it. And, and the also people you were
1: getting, I mean, it wasn't like you people
0: were, we were getting yeah. who, who weren't doing other things like this. And also the fact that we had very loyal listeners. I mean, people right. that really liked it, but so it, it was definitely demoralizing to find that myself and the guy who records it, it's been a couple of people over the course of the podcast, but lately for a long time, Matt Whitehurst, this guy that records it, we, and edits it, you know, it was definitely demoralizing. Like, what more do you want from us? We're giving you, Great. I don't think there's another wow. podcast that has the guest list. It's not to brag. It's just, I think it's objectively. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I know for, from the way I prep that the interviews are more comprehensive than other yep. po- interviews that are out there because, I read every other interview they've done to prep. Right. So, you know, what happens is that it's like I start with maybe a dozen different resources like the New York Times, LA Times, NPR, Variety, Hollywood Reporter, Vanity Fair, uh, Interview Magazine, IMDb, Wikipedia, you know, whatever. Start with the same group with each person and print everything they've ever done on this person.
1: Do you at least have someone doing that for you? No. Oh, wow.
0: So uh, there's, there's, this is, I you wish there was intern, a team. You need intern,
1: Scott. You need an, at least an uh, intern <laughs> who just will do that and then you can review it.
0: Well, you would think that would be easy, but we're not even allowed to have interns now because even before the pandemic, you know, and I think this is right. You need to pay yeah. interns. It's not fair to have in this day and age nobody can be in LA and not making money. And I'm not going to. You know, we have yeah. interns for the whole newsroom,
1: but not um, for... you should but, have. I will if there is a place I can petition for you to be able <laughs> to get a budget for an intern because I, I just I just feel like this is such a huge part. I mean, obviously, I look at Hollywood Reporter for other stuff for you know just trade stuff, but you are in my head the Hollywood Reporter so just and for a lot of people, I'm sure. So anyway,
0: well, I will tell you that in a way it works out because I'm not good at. Trusting other people to be as thorough as I will be, and so yeah. you just there's no shortcut you've got to make sure that you have read everything that there's no yeah. way around and you know I watch a lot of movies that are current for my right. job and also I watch older movies because I love them and so I, that part of it at least I don't generally have to do too much beyond what I've already done right. in terms of the, the viewing but the reading is coming oh up God. for an episode. This is going to be one episode of prep material for, I'll give you the heads up that Sophia Loren is Ooh. going to be doing it. So obviously she has a very large a body of, of work. that. Oh, I'll good. Yeah. I'll do yeah.
1: something with that.
0: <laughs> so, you know, there's no shortcut. If you're going to have an hour wow. with Sophia Loren, you can't waste her time or your time because that just doesn't, that opportunity doesn't come about very often. No. And so I would not want to go in there and, Kind of wing it or improvise it, and yet when you have done the prep and mapped out your questions in a way where you're sort of anticipating, all right, well the answer of this question is going to probably lead to the next question. If you've done the prep, then you are in a position to feel comfortable improvising if it does go in a different right. direction. But you know, if you're just bullshitting, basically, it's a lot harder to keep it engaged. And the other thing is to come back to your question about the where were you born and raised, what did your parents do for a living, or whatever. I think that subliminally. Part of that is that you immediately lower expectations. They think, Jesus, this guy didn't even bother to, he needs to know where I was, he couldn't Google where I was born and raised and what my parents did or whatever. And so I think initially there may be sometimes thrown where they're like, all right, I'll, I'll, I'll engage. The other thing that they sometimes react is, oh, isn't that nice? Like, I don't normally get asked that because when you have 10 minutes with somebody, you don't have time to, Go so they can either look at it like you've lowered expectations and then you surprise them after that, or it's just conditioning them like, oh, this is going to be a really, mm. this is going to be an in-depth, different kind of interview. Yeah. And so either way, it then builds on, so you start with a generic question, but then very quickly it, it gets into Interesting. stuff that shows that you did your work, yeah. which is not the point. You're not looking for a pat on the back, no. but it is nice when they realize and acknowledge that, oh, okay, so you did you know, my producer and I sort of were like, imaginary. Let's have an imaginary drinking game where if we mm. can get them each episode unsolicited, whatever. But if you, if somebody says, "I, I can't believe you know that,", that or whatever, I've never. Yeah, yeah that is. Yeah, that you've mean, done
1: your research. Something you've like done that.
0: your research. That 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 is a good feeling because that means that it was worth.
1: It, it happens a lot as a fan of your podcast. I remember, you know, even just recently, um, Lily James was on, right? And she was on Rebecca. And you asked this very interesting question, which I think really threw her for a second. Be- and I'm not going to remember the name of the person you had interviewed, but you had known... You had interviewed someone who was best friends with her grandmother. Was that what it was?
0: So I think it was, yeah, and I think it was Patricia Neal, who we Patricia talked about Neal. from Brandeis. Exactly. So it kind of all comes full circle.
1: But she was thrown. She was like, oh, and you said that she had mentioned her <laughs> grandmother, and she. it really, that sets a different type of tone for the rest of the interview.
0: I think so, and I hope so, because it's like, you know, whether it's that or or a little tidbit that they've, never been asked about. Or, you know, there are certain examples where it's something they said once years ago in passing in a larger interview where you know, wait a minute, that might actually provoke a better story. And I'll give you my favorite example in a way of that was that, you know, I don't set out to try to make people cry in the way that I think like Matt Lauer and Katie (laughs) Couric and some people maybe tried to do. But like, if you get that result, that means you've probably Ask the question that really got to somebody's real feelings about right. something or whatever. And so, with Jennifer Lawrence in the course of prepping, Loved I mean, like
1: your interview, for Jennifer <laughs> L- gone. That was Thank one of my you. favorite episodes, but on.
0: Well, well, I she was great, and I had a couple things going for me with that one, which was that her publicist is somebody who I'm friends with who I think told her, like, this is going to be a serious interview and take it seriously. The other thing is, I'm very good friends with her producing partner who. I think it similarly said like you know this is going to be an experience be ready like take it seriously whatever. So not that you need to be told that in advance. I don't want to have expectations built up too high either, but I think she came in recognized that it was going to cover a lot of stuff and she was willing to engage on everything from sexual harassment in the business to the hacking of her phone which is not a Comfortable thing for her to always talk about yeah. But the the thing that in the prep of that The one nugget from an old interview That I kind of got the sense Might Provoke an interesting answer Had to do with visiting Children's hospitals right. Where basically I, I wanted to set up the question where I was like Alright so Hunger Games And Silver Linings come out essentially At the same time Same year basically and suddenly From being like the girl from Winter's Bone, coming back to Deborah Granick. Yeah. Uh, you know, who people, she got an Oscar nomination. But no one knew Jennifer, her. No one yeah. really knew. She wasn't, like, she could go about her life. Yeah. Exactly. Now suddenly everyone in the world knows her. And we were talking about, I was like, you know, how did you, that, I get the sense that was a little challenging. How did you handle that? And I wanted her to first vent about the, you know, like, being yeah your life is suddenly upside down she she was I think she talks about being in a in a Walmart or something where she walked on her way out she sees that all along the windows at the front of the store are paparazzi who are gonna follow her and she like her life was not gonna be the same so I've given her a chance to talk about how her life was impacted by her being famous suddenly negatively. and then negatively. And then I was like, all right, now here's this one nugget that I had found, which I'd only heard her talk about once. Maybe she's talked about it more, but it was like, I think every Christmas Eve or Christmas day, she goes to a children's hospital in Kentucky where she's from and visits children. And at one point she met a girl who had suffered horrible, like burn
1: right. burns
0: all over her whole body, and was a young kid, a young girl, and said something to Jennifer like, "I'm
1: the girl on fire. I'm okay because yeah.
0: I'm the girl on fire. Like, like, yeah,
1: I remember that in Hunger
0: Games or something, and something like that. And Jennifer Lawrence just like broke down because she's like, for me to complain about the price of what I've had to." give up to be doing what I love to do for a living at this level and to be paid for and all that. And then to go to a place like that and realize that it actually means something to people, put it all in perspective that she's not going to, and this was, you know, this is not a canned line. This is a heartfelt in the moment reaction. I mean, she's a great actress, but she's not that no, she's, great an actress. She's authentic. Yeah. I and know. so- I feel like if you can get at the truth of somebody's feelings like that because you know the alternative is back to the kind of interviews that I was offered the chance to do when people would come through Boston when I was you know going to as a a Brandeis student going to do these kind of junket style interviews or, or group interviews in Boston. It was a thrill to be able to do that with current active people but if everybody that's doing that has five to 10 minutes or something with the person, they all are going to ask relatively similar questions. Nobody has much of a chance to get into a real conversation. You're not going to. And so what happens understandably is that the talent develops sort of canned responses and, yeah, Maybe they, they really mean what they say, but it's sort of become when you say something 500 times, yeah, it loses its, how genuine it was and what all of that, all of that. So the fact that early on we established that the podcast is going to be an hour at least and it's going to cover your whole life and career and that we then had buy-in for that format from people that didn't have to do it and haven't done it elsewhere like Meryl Streep or Will Smith or whatever, Steven Spielberg, pretty much anyone after that, how do they say, oh, I, I don't, I'm sorry, I don't do that. It's, I'm not going to do it. When very luckily early on the cream of the crop believed in it or their publicists have to have to give them a lot of thanks right. for promoting because they kind of advise them about what they should do. Yeah. And they realize, look, it's going to be maybe more time than you would normally spend on an interview, but it's going to be time well spent. Right. And it will then be promoted and reach a lot of people and all of that. But the that allows me to be able to, be methodical about the interviews.
1: Mm. Well, I want to be mindful of time. So I'm going to ask just a couple other quick questions. This one's from a mutual friend of ours, Adam Irving. I specifically, okay. <laughs> yeah, he was great. I asked him, I was like, I, I'm having him on the show in a couple hours. Do you have a question? So Excellent he wanted documentary
0: to ask, filmmaker for people who don't. He is know, off the uh, rails
1: being one of yes, those. Yes, So he wanted me to ask you, what are some tricks and tactics that film studios go through to curry favor for award voters, particularly for the Oscars?
0: Well, this year with the pandemic is obviously going to be different than any other year, but generally there are all kinds of stuff from lunches and dinners, which within limits they're, they're allowed to do to promote their stuff to academy members and to other voters and tastemakers and whatever. There's post-screening Q&As. There's, you know, all kinds of things that basically exist, not because people are like, oh, we have too much money that we don't know what to do with. How do we blow this? What can we do with it? It's really from a PR and marketing point of view, very strategic that I think people look at Academy members and they think these guys must, this must be their job. That's all they do. They watch movies all day and they then vote. But the reality is that a lot of them are still very busy and active in their careers. So they don't have a lot of time to watch movies before they have to vote. And so many of them vote having seen only 12 or 15 or, you know, a, yeah. whatever the number may be. So the big challenge for the distributors is, what can we do to convince them to make our movie one of the 12 of to those. 15? Yeah. Because you're not going to presumably vote for a movie that you haven't seen. Mm. And so the, it's all about how do we get you to at least give our movie a chance. The movie then still has to be decent right, um, to get their support, but there's a lot of at least decent movies that yeah, get lost and are never, you know? So I think that, screeners, sending the vote, you know, doing everything you can to make it as easy as possible for the voter to, you know, to make sure they watch the movie at some point. Now there's an Academy streaming service, so they don't even have to bother to get up and put in a DVD. They can right. just watch it on the service. Uh, yeah. Um, but all of that is about luring people to, you know, check out the movie.
1: Be one of the 12 to 15. Exactly. So, and some, by okay. the
0: way, are much better. You know, I'm not saying none of them watch more than twelve to fifteen, but right. I some think are the, the assumption—you yeah, watch more. Yeah. I, I have definitely, to, but, yeah, yeah yeah, but yeah, yeah.
1: I read an article in 2010 from the Wall Street Journal referencing you as as the blogger and the winner is, and it, you wrote, and this is just a small part of it. You know, you're leading a surreal existence when, in the course of a few months, you've run into George Clooney on three separate occasions. I don't mind <laughs> not being included in the parties. I can buy my own dinner, but what I miss. <laughs> It's funny. But what I miss is the constant strategizing. Unfortunately, that stops after the Oscars. So I guess, do you feel the same way now post Oscar season? Or is it is it a different feeling? Afterwards?
0: Well, first, I'm going to give a shameless George Clooney reference again right now, because yesterday I interviewed him for much more um, extensively than I ever did back then, because at that point, again, it was and the winner is it was like I was very happy to or scottfeinberg.com, I guess at that point, maybe it was. And I was like, just absolutely beside myself to be in the the room, which again, I I don't take that for granted now, but it was nice. Yesterday we did 45 minutes about his new movie called Midnight, The Midnight Sky, which is coming to Netflix soon. And that article will be up shortly. But uh, anyway, the answer to your question is that over those 10 years since that, since those comments, it actually – so I was saying it's unfortunate I miss that the the, strat- that the strategy stops yes. after the Oscars. Is yes. that what I said? You miss well, the
1: constant strategizing.
0: So be, I have to be careful what I wish for because now what happens is if Oscar season is essentially September through February, what then has since happened is the Emmys have grown into a very comparable thing. They've they used In 2010, I had nothing to do with the Emmys. Now, especially with the rise you of streaming services- we do the whole thing. And so a lot of the film actors now go between film and TV. Yep. And they expect to be promoted in the same sort of way by TV. And Emmy campaigns have now become a big thing. And that is really, the thick of that is June through August, September. There's a little overlap, the end of Emmys, beginning of Oscars. So that takes up that part of the year. And then the where you might think there is that, Gap for a vacation like between February and June yeah, actually has there has not been because I ended up asking to and falling in love with doing covering the Tonys. So I would go to right. New York and that was when the Tony season right. was really in the yeah. heat of it. yeah and so covering Broadway, which I love doing. And then that was becoming a bigger thing where, you know, it's not like I was the only one doing it, but it's each year become bigger and bigger. So essentially what I do now, and I'm not complaining, it's just, just different, is that it is truly year round. And it's good because I think, you know, I like what I do, which is very lucky. And also, I don't know that anyone, you know, it's better. It makes you more, in a sense, like valuable to your employer, employer. if you're not disappearing for half the year, which, True. uh, so anyway, that's been, that's been that.
1: All right. And I'll ask one more question just because mm-hmm. I'm trying to be mindful of time. So you're in a way, and this is actually from Adam too, but I'm going to okay. tie in a question I had already. So, <laughs> and combine it, but, um, you're known, you know, more and more, you know, year after year as, as, more of an Oscar Oracle, right? You, you know, with an extremely high Oscar prediction rate, I've used you myself for, my Oscar pools and such every year. I hope I haven't let you down. No, it's been great. (laughs) So how have you been able to predict Oscar winners with such accuracy? And do people often get back to you saying that you've helped them win their Oscar pool?
0: You know, what's been funny is like when it's somebody I don't even never heard of, never met where I'll get an email. Literally, there was a guy from Dublin, I think once who was like, you know, hey, man, you you just won me my oscar pool. if you're ever in Hi. dublin i owe you i owe you a pint or something you know like and it's it's been funny cuz again it's all been so accidental where the only reason the oscars came into the picture at all was that i was obsessed with old movies and it was just yeah. another way to so then it became just inadvertent that all right even though the academy membership people die people change you know the membership right. changes the especially preferences in the last few years. exactly especially in the last few years somehow the general preferences have largely remained the same. And so there was a way to look at it that way that you could predict it that way and, and just knowing the history. But also, the longer I've done it, the more you realize that there are other indicators. Some, you know, matter more than others, which you just kind of, as you learn, for instance, that the Golden Globes are, it's interesting, but it has nothing to, there's no, overlap with the with the Academy. The Golden Globes are like 90 L.A. based journalists for foreign outlets. And there are virtually no members of the media in the Academy. The only ones who, who are are people who were once media right. and wow. now got into film. So, and there are thousands of people in the Academy. The point there is just that these two groups have nothing to think, do with each yeah. other except the fact that you know the Golden Globe Awards ceremony usually is right around the time that people are voting for the nominations of the Oscars. Mm. And so the only thing that generally really happens is that if somebody wins a Golden Globe, it might slightly boost them right. for the Oscars because then the Academy members are like, well, I better I better check, check that, that out. That's, out. Yeah. Right. It's another one where it's wow. like, all right, how do I pick what to watch? So like, oh, Rami Malek just beat Bradley Cooper for the Golden Globe. Maybe I better make sure I've seen that. Uh, or, you know, Olivia Colman just won the Golden Globe for the favorite over, and it wasn't over Glenn Close. It was in a dish because the Golden Globes have, they had that's two another ca- they have two, two categories. categories. Yeah. So, you know, there are things like that where, um, but then, you know, I look at the Oscar race as a sort of parallel thing to the election, uh, election season, I guess, where, you know, you've got primaries and caucuses where it's like, Everybody in the world is running.
1: There's a campaign.
0: Campaign. People are, you know, how effective are they out on the campaign trail? Do they have the resources to actually really have a chance to raise awareness enough to register for a lot of these academy members? You know, in the same way that people that cover the election talk to voters, I do that too, but both of us are should be smart enough to know that, you know, we could talk to hundreds of voters that is still not a scientifically significant sample. So we don't, predict based on that, but what it does is it helps to identify what are things that Academy members are right. thinking about or and having you do issues profile with. Profile
1: them. So like if if every you'll be like, this is the anonymous profile of an Oscar yes, of, of a an brutally academy.
0: honest ballot. Yes, yeah, yeah. Those yeah. are good. There, people, people are brutal. They are brutal. And, you know, I'm not condoning the way that they all think at all, but it is I think it's still to to come back to Brandeis, I believe it was Justice Brandeis, who said that sunlight is the best disinfectant. Mm. Meaning, like, I let's not pretend that the Academy members are all, you know,
1: super the, the
0: most enlightened. Liberal, pop-
1: progressive. Right. The, there's
0: oh, there's when you've got thousands of people there, you're gonna have all kinds of people. Of course. And I think and, and again, some of them <laughs> don't watch very many movies. Some of them uh, some of them are very diligent, but it's helpful, I think whether I agree with the voter or not to share with our readers during the run up to the Oscars, like, look, this is what is actually going yeah. into a decision. And so that's, you know, that is to you know, to answer your question, just like the predictions factor in a million different things. There is no mathematical equation. Yeah. Um, the, Please, really? sorry, my dog that's here, okay.
1: yep.
0: Hippie, relax. Um, so, done. <laughs> uh, <laughs> you know, the, the there are people every year that email me looking for coverage of some formula that they claim to have come up with that's going to predict the Oscars. We even occasionally have run pieces by such a person. And in addition to my own coverage, and I will just say that They don't usually do very well because there is a human factor to it's actually, by the way, the name of a documentary that might be uh, nominated this year, the human factor, but there is a human Mm -hmm. factor where people are like, you know, you can't quantify. There was a thing. This was before I was really, I guess it was right when I was starting doing Oscar predictions, but it's an example of something that no equation would have factored in where, At the BAFTA Awards shortly before the Oscars, but during the final voting of the Oscars, Russell Crowe won Best Actor for Beautiful Mind. And then they cut his speech short Mm. from TV or something. And he went backstage and basically like, essentially threatened to beat up the producer of the show. And this got out and it led to a lot of bad coverage because there was already a sense that Russell Crowe was a bit of an asshole. I don't know if he still is, but that was there. And Russell Crowe had had won the Oscar of the year before for Gladiator. And it's like, it's not a small thing to give somebody two in a row. And it's like, no. you don't give it to somebody else if, if somebody's an asshole. And so what happened was, in a bit of a surprise for some people, Denzel Washington ended up winning Best Actor for Training Day over Russell Crowe for A Beautiful Mind. Nothing really would have suggested that was likely to happen because – how do you quantify somebody threatening to beat up, you know, just the bad press that came with that. You know, it's just one kind of little example of the things that happen along the way where you kind of just get a read. There's there's other things, you know, a million different things where you do know math. I'm not saying math is irrelevant or stats are irrelevant because you can look at a category like visual effects and know that when there is a movie nominated for best visual effects, that is also nominated for best picture. I think only once has that movie lost to a movie that wasn't nominated for Best wow. Picture. So what is that about? Well, most of the movies that are nominated for Best Visual Effects.
1: Wow.
0: You I mean, here's an example where that category, the visual effects branch of the Academy, solely picks the nominees of the visual effects category. Right. But then everybody in the Academy gets to pick the winner. And so if, if the nominees there are like Avengers, Age of Ultron, or, you know, a movie that's nominated for best picture, they're gonna, they may not have seen Avengers, Age of Ultron, or it may not really be the cup of tea of Academy members who are presumably, you know, people that are looking for original stuff. And so what ends up happening is either because they've seen, more of them have seen the best picture nominee or because a non-best picture nominee is inherently less their cup of tea, almost always the best picture nominee in that category wins. Even mm-hmm. when people go in there, I, I think the wow. the example of a couple years ago was, um, God, I I forget, but it was, there was a, a one where uh, nobody really had the the winner being what it ended up being, which was the best picture nominee in the category, because the reality is it didn't have the best visual effects work. Mm. But
1: people—they
0: still, still won because you don't vote for a movie you haven't seen, right? Or a movie you don't like overall.
1: Smart. It's true. Some
0: people do, you know, but most people are like, I just didn't like that movie. Wow. So you have to—it's a bit, a bit of psychology, a bit of stats, a bit of just you got to kind of know what you're dealing with. So it's a fun, you know, I never liked math or science when I actually had to do it in school, but when it's involving, this is, yeah, this is kind of interesting.
1: Wow. A lot of stuff. (laughs) i'm i i don't want to end it but i will thank you so much i really 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 appreciate this and um this has been so terrific to just just not only break down you know sort of in a way your career but also just pick your brain about things like this thank
0: you for being so nice and supportive of the work and for doing you know your own prep and a really good interview and i i really appreciate it and thanks a lot take care take care
1: All right, guys, review time. So thank you for all of you who have reviewed the podcast. I want to read one from Gia Doxie. She writes, the podcast for all creatives trying to be in the business. As someone who loves jumping from department to department, I'm so grateful for the insight from an established and kind collection of people. These conversations need to be long form, and Michelle knows how to ask the questions we may be afraid to ask. Very inspiring. All the best to everyone listening. Thanks so much, G. I really appreciate it. What part of the inspiration for this podcast was someone like that, was someone who actually I know who was telling me she was sort of jumping from department to department and she was trying to find that next job in entertainment and she didn't know what it was. And I remember asking, like, do you have any idea? She was like, no, I think I'm just going to look for what's out there. And I remember thinking, shouldn't there be a resource where you know what these jobs are like or what else is out there we might not know about? and uh, have these things be somewhat attainable. So thanks, Gia, for that. And if you haven't already, please rate and review on Apple Podcasts. Uh, I really appreciate it. You could just go to the link in my bio on Instagram. It's super easy, and uh, it's very much appreciated. I might read your review on an episode next week. Thanks so much. Thank you so much for listening to mentors on the mic. If you enjoyed the episode, please share it with a friend, you know, would love it. Let me know what you learned or what stayed with you on our Instagram at mentors on the mic. I will be sharing even more information about our mentors there. These are crazy times. And now more than ever, it's so important to connect. Talk to someone about what you learned today who would really appreciate it and send them the episode. Also, if you love the show, please go ahead and leave us a rating on iTunes. Every week I'm choosing a review to read on an episode. It really makes a huge difference in growing this. Thanks.